Good evening. Um, thank you all very much for coming. Um, I'm Nick Stern. I'm a professor of economics at the LSE. And this event is hosted by LSE Ideas, Department of International History at the LSE, and the Royal Economic Society, which is actually why I'm chairing it, because I'm currently this year president of the Royal Economic Society. But on behalf of all three of them, um, welcome. Now, I'm going to very briefly introduce um, our guests, and of course the first, Catherine Schenk, who's our speaker, Catherine, just here, and she is, she is the Professor of Economic and Social History at uh, Oxford, and uh, more importantly, an LSE PhD in Economic History. Um, and then in order of the commentary which they'll offer, um, Catherine will speak for 35, 40 minutes, and then we'll just have a few minutes of commentary from um, our other guests in, in this order. Um, uh, the first will be uh, Gus O'Donnell, who was the Cabinet Secretary and Head of the Civil Service during some of these uh, crucial years, 2005 to 2011, and before that he was the Permanent Secretary at the, at the Treasury. And even more importantly, he's currently a visiting professor at the London School of Economics. <laughs> and he's just delivered a lecture for me. Oh, very good. That's true. And so yeah. Gus will go first, and then Charlie Bean um, is professor of economics at LSE, and he was formerly deputy governor of the Bank of England, and before he was at the bank, he was a professor of economics at the London School of Economics. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Minus uh, Shafiq is one of our most uh, famous alum, MSc in the, a number of years ago. I won't be precise. And um, then um, she was uh, many things, Permanent Secretary at DFID, Deputy Managing Director of the IMF, Deputy Governor of the Bank of England, and finally and most importantly, Director of the London School of Economics. <laughs> so you can see we cast our net widely for... Uh, <laughs> All the participants here. Now, in, uh, just to get you off in a, in a good mood, I'm going to read you from a letter, not a private letter, a public letter, I hasten to add. <laughs> Madam, uh, when Your Majesty visited the London School of Economics last November, the letter's dated July 2009, when Your Majesty visited the London School of Economics last November, you quite rightly asked slightly patronising there, you quite rightly asked why had nobody noticed that the credit, credit crunch was on its way? In other words, why didn't you see it coming? And um, the, the British Academy, I've just stepped down as, as president of the British Academy, but the British Academy convened then a uh, gathering in June to debate your question. And uh, here is the... Uh, it, it, uh, it's like this, I'm not going to read the, the whole thing. You can Google it and get it off the web any time you like. And so, in summary, Your Majesty, the failure to foresee the timing, extent and severity of the crisis and to head it off, while it had many causes, the failure had many causes, while it had many causes was principally a failure of the collective imagination of many bright people, both in this country and internationally, to understand the risks to the system as a whole. In other words, we didn't see it coming. Um, <laughs> that's a nice letter. You, you may want to uh, have, have, have a look at it. I mean, I, I raised it because the question was asked quite understandably at the London School of Economics. 
And it's not an easy question to answer. And in a sense, our discussion today uh, will in large measure bring that out. For full transparency, um, I was at the Treasury in the build-up to the crisis. I'd just come back to London School of Economics when the crisis broke. There's no cause and effect there. Um, <laughs> but I was working on really big risks, which were climate change. So, um, uh, Catherine, we're delighted that uh, you're going to uh, kick off our discussion and... Uh, Welcome to the LSE. Welcome back to the LSE. And the floor is yours. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you uh, very much. Um, it's, I was going to say what a pleasure it is to be uh, back at the London School of Economics and surprise you all with the fact that I uh, am a graduate from here, but that, that's been taken from me. Um, uh, but it is an absolute pleasure to be here. Um, I think the 10-year anniversary of uh, one of the most profound uh, shuddering in the global economy, uh, the ricochet across the world that we're still feeling 10 years on, uh, really is a moment to reflect uh, not only on the causes of the crisis, um, immediate causes, but also its longer-term consequences. Um, and what we might draw from past experiences uh, and what we did draw from past experiences um, in response to the crisis. Um, so I am an economic historian, so I'm going to be delving back a little bit um, and leaving uh, the um, immediate causes uh, to the panel. Um, so I'm really interested in what did we learn and perhaps what have we forgotten um, about uh, financial crises, about previous crises, about how to resolve them, long-term consequences, and how the international economic system works. Um, this is not the only event uh, celebrating, commiserating, uh, marking the 10th year of uh, this anniversary. Um, and so there's been a lot of discussion. There's been many, many panels. There's radio programs, TV programs, and special documentaries, um, all looking at the events of 10 years ago and the causes. Um, and a lot of reflections in hindsight. Um, why were governments so complacent? Here we have had the letter from Besley uh, to the Queen. Why were regulators so blind to what was happening? Why were bankers so greedy um, in a risking all uh, and our, our future, the unemployment um, and stability so, so uh, cravenly? Why were perhaps were borrowers and home buyers uh, so irresponsible in getting themselves into so much debt that they couldn't in the end repay? So there's a lot of um, villains out there that can be blamed uh, for this crisis, and each has taken, I think, some of the responsibility. Um, but I wanted to reflect a little bit more on systemic effects uh, and the outcomes of the crisis and think about where we are 10 years on from that crisis rather than um, the run up to it. Um, so what kind of things that we learned from this hindsight is a reinvigorated focus on macroprudential supervision, uh, a recognition that is also in Tim's letter uh, to the Queen about the dangers of just uh, supervising and examining one institution at a time and not having a vision, an imagination, as he says, of the systemic um, issues that might be uh, hidden in that microprudential uh, framework. But also a reinvigorated uh, focus on microprudential supervision with Dodd-Frank um, and other kinds of legislation and capital adequacy ratios, Basel III, um, and the BIS process um, that I'll speak about a little bit in a moment. 
the key uses of the past, um, and I think it's quite inspiring perhaps for an economic historian, um, up until about 2008, a lot of us were sort of whistling in the dark about how important it was to understand the 1930s. Um, I was trying to argue how important it is to understand the 1970s when we first entered an era of floating exchange rates, when we entered an era of suddenly accelerating financial innovation. Um, but people didn't pay that much attention. Um, when the financial crisis struck, of course, however, Ben Bernanke is an economic historian. He's an economic historian of the 1930s. And so that crisis had a, a huge amount of resonance, not only for him, but also for how people understood the crisis and indeed how they reacted. So in the 1930s, you had kind of a sovereign debt, war debt, uh, reparations of fragility in the global financial system. You had asset market shocks in terms of the stock market, agricultural markets, um, and you had the banking and financial crisis, not only in the United States, but also across Central and Western Europe. Um, and the diagnosis from this, from Bernanke himself, from Barry Eichengreen, from Charles Kinderberger and others, um, had to do with the lack, part of the problem why the reason that uh, the crisis was as deep and prolonged and global as it was, part of it had to do with the lack of American leadership at this time. Um, so that was a really important lesson that America had to kind of step in and really take an important role here. Um, and uh, lessons from the European financial crisis were about contagion uh, crossing markets um, and risks of uh, international capital flows. But I think we also need to reflect that 10 years after that 1930s crisis, if we were reflecting back and having an event like this, we'd have been in the middle of the Second World War. So in that case, I think we should think that, well, we haven't done that badly um, in the end. We're in the middle of a certain kind of tension across the world, um, and certainly a tension in, uh, in Europe, uh, but we haven't kind of found ourselves back um, in, in sort of desperation. Um, so the responses to the crisis were directly informed by that understanding of the 1930s. Uh, fiscal expansion, uh, so the G20 and Gordon Brown met very quickly and said we have to kind of have some fiscal expansion. Now that momentum kind of dried up pretty quickly um, and it per perhaps encouraged some countries to some fiscal irresponsibility in the short term. Um, but the more lasting thing that we're left with is the monetary expansion. The great lesson of the Great Depression is that if you're going into a recession, you don't contract the money supply, you expand the money supply. And this comes out of a book that I read, read when I was here at the LSE and before, uh, uh, Friedman and Schwartz's uh, uh, Monetary History of the United States. Um, but we're now, that kind of led to QE, and we're now, however, left with that 10 years on. Uh, the other response, of course, was through regulation. I mentioned Basel III, rather, and Dodd-Frank, but also a renewed enthusiasm and momentum and commitment to international cooperation that had been sort of waning, I think, in the period from the 1990s into the 2000s. So these are the themes that I wanted to look at. So first of all, this is data from a very famous uh, VoxEU post uh, of Barry Eichengreen and Kevin O'Rourke, my colleague in Oxford, and I'm grateful to him uh, for his updated um, data. Um, and this is comparing the 1929-30 the crisis with what happened in, 19, in 2008 um, and 2009. And you can see that in the first start of the crisis, um, what happened in 2008-09 was in some markets worse than what had happened in 1929-30. And that's quite shocking. And when they first kind of delivered this result on a global level, um, it was quite shocking. But you can see that the rebounding of the black line is the more recent crisis. 
um, back to the pre-crisis levels um, is much faster than it was in the 1930s. Um, So industrial production fell just about the same as it did in the 1929-30 crisis, but recovered relatively quickly. World trade fell further, fell sharper, collapsed more indeed in the 2008-09 crisis uh, than in the 1930s, but again bounced back faster. Um, The data for uh, the stock market, the global stock market, um, it's not extended as far, but you can see that the stock market fall was again bigger than what happened in the 1929-30 crisis, but the bounce back um, was much stronger. Um, And indeed, it recovered uh, the uh, pre-crisis levels of April 2008 uh, by about 2014. And of course, then we've seen a huge kind of bull market, um, which may or may not be coming to an end um, since then. So I think the lessons that that were drawn from the 1930s, the policies and responses that were imposed using the past experience, we can say with these kinds of uh, metrics at least seem quite successful. But there are some other kind of longer-term things that are happening now that also reflect back into some lessons that were perhaps less prominent or, in an extreme case, neglected uh, lessons of what happened in the 1930s and also, I'll argue, in the 1970s. So another feature of the 1930s crisis was that after it struck, there's a series of currency wars, competitive depreciation, exchange rate instability and volatility, Um, and that this had quite profound effects, and I'll talk about it in a moment. And we hear this now. Trump is kind of going, well, China is a currency manipulator. It's depreciating its currency against us, and then maybe it's not a currency manipulator because they don't want to use that word because it has particular connotations. Um, But there's still issues uh, around that, and I'll speak to that in a moment. The second theme is about the governance of the global economy. We need to remember that the 1930s crisis inspired Uh, Keynes and uh, Harry White to develop the Bretton Woods system. So the International Monetary Fund that still exists today, the World Bank that still exists today, these were the responses to what they saw as a chaotic, decentralized, leaderless and rudderless international system that required some kind of coordination and a forum for that coordination. So there's a really profound change in the global governance after the 1930s. Um, And it was based on these sort of principles of capital controls, pegged exchange rates, uh, creating a global source of liquidity for short-term deviations from equilibrium. And I'm going to speak a little bit about the global financial safety net um, that emerged from that. And the third shock, of course, is the trade shock. Um, So we saw in the last slide the trade shock in 2008-09 was deeper, but much, much shorter. Um, And the the dislocation of the global trading system in the 1930s was a really profound impact um, of that crisis that we seem to have avoided. But of course, 10 years on, there's a turn to economic nationalism that we're seeing. There's a turn to these ideas of protectionism um, that have kind of raised some of the specters of, uh, of those kinds of trade shocks. And I'm quoting here from Rajan and Zangales' work before the crisis that really spoke of the 1930s as the great reversal of globalization. So you had the period of the first globalization from the 1850s and the 1870s onward up to 1914, and then you have the great reversal in the 1930s before it starts to be built up again and expands from the 1990s onward. Um, So their great lesson before the crisis was that globalization is not a one-way train, Um, that there is the possibility to retreat from globalization, and they drew on those historical lessons to show that. Okay, so currency wars today. 
There's a lot of talk about currency wars that started uh, about 2010. Um, particularly for emerging market economies. Um, I'm not trying to say that what's happening today is the same as what happened in the 1930s. In the 1930s, it's part of economic nationalism. It leads to retaliatory trade barriers. Uh, it made everybody really nervous and feel that floating exchange rates, fluctuating exchange rates are dangerous. They're risky. They cause conflict between countries. Um, and they're uh, um, uh, a barrier to international cooperation. Um, so the 2010s is not the same as that. But we do have these spillover effects from unconventional monetary policy. Uh, we do have the impact of the quantitative easing uh, and the huge expansion of the balance sheets and monetary expansion and the impact that that has on the global exchange rate system, particularly, of course, on the value of the U.S. dollar. Um, and this has had huge impact on emerging market economies. Um, and these spillover effects in 2009-12, uh, when the quantitative easing started, the dollar is depreciating, um, a huge capital inflow, which was very difficult for them to deal with. There's the taper tantrum of 2013, uh, when Bernanke seemed to hint that the quantitative easing might stop, uh, and there's a big rush of that capital back out of the emerging market economies, um, and then a more sustained outflow in 2014 onward. Um, the impact of uh, this is exacerbated by dollar indebtedness. And I'll show you in a moment uh, that the denomination of international debt is more and more increasingly in U.S. dollars. Um, and this makes these countries much more vulnerable to the appreciation of the U.S. dollar that is following the tapering off and the reversal of quantitative easing. So you have the emerging market economies uh, versus the United States. Uh, you've also just more recently in the last month uh, or so or I guess even in, when Trump was uh, running for election, uh, he also was uh, talking about the renminbi exchange rate. Um, but there's been quite a lot of discussion about that more recently. Okay, um, this is uh, Jay Powell, um, and a, a quotation from him, just to show you that this story that I'm telling you is not uncontested. Um, and indeed, the Americans are not uh, great proponents of the spillover uh, theory. Um, so this was a speech that he gave at an event that I was at, actually, in Zurich. Um, and it was quite an important time. It was May 2018, and I'll leave you to read that. Um, but certainly there's a good reason to think that normalization of monetary policies should continue to pr prove manageable for EMEs. Now, on the very day he gave that speech, Argentina went to the fund um, for support, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, this is showing you the U.S. dollar broad effective exchange rate index, so it's sort of a trade-weighted index, and it's taking you back to, um, sorry, Nick, 1994. <laughs> That's okay. Um, and you can see the appreciation of the U.S. dollar uh, in the 1990s, and that time, of course, is associated with a lot of emerging market financial crises, um, starting with Mexico in 1994, the Asian financial crisis in 1997. You then have the wonderful depreciation of the great moderation, which just sounds so marvelous. The great moderation sounds like you just relax in your, in your bubble bath through the great moderation. Um, it turned out not to be so, mod, uh, so moderating in the long term. The bounce um, at the time of the global financial crisis, um, the period of quantitative easing, and then the end of quantitative easing, seeing the return of the appreciation of the U.S. dollar very sharply. 
Um, and this is just picking out a few of the emerging market nominal effective exchange rate um, indices just to show you the kind of changes that were happening. I don't know if I can get a pointer here. No. Um, but what you're seeing is, uh, is, is some depreciation, some appreciation um, in the run-up to the crisis. Uh, there's then the destabilizing effect of the bounce. Um, and then when the quantitative easing starts in the United States, you have the appreciation particularly of the currencies of Brazil and South Africa. Um, and it's Brazil uh, that starts to and invokes the 1930s in, in 2010 and says we're in a period of currency war. Uh, our currencies are appreciating. This is making it more difficult for us to export um, and is having profound effects on our economy. Of course, that then turned into a depreciation as the capital flowed out again. Um, and you can see uh, I've put in Turkey, um, Argentina there, um, who have, of course, more recently in the last few months, um, been in much more dire straits. And this is uh, from the Bank for International Settlements quarterly review, just to show you uh, why the dollar matters. And it's always kind of mattered throughout the post-war period. But the intensity of dollar denomination in a growing world of cross-border debt means that the world is even more vulnerable to the variations in that exchange rate. Um, so if you're borrowing in U.S. dollars and you have to repay in U.S. dollars, as the dollar becomes more valuable, it becomes more and more difficult um, to repay. Um, so you can see that the movement is also away from bank loans and towards international securities and, uh, and bonds, particularly government bonds, but also corporate bonds. Um, and that the share of, uh, of U.S. dollar denominated both bank loans and securities in that second panel um, is really soaring. And you see that after the global financial crisis and then into the Eurozone crisis, the share for the Euro has, has just kind of fallen away. It's hard for us to remember, but in 2008 or so, everybody's saying, oh, well, the Euro's going to overtake the dollar, maybe the RMB and this sort of thing. There was all that kind of talk of that shifting, and that really is over. Um, okay, there's some issues around this. So the spillover effects don't have, don't have the same effect on every country. Um, and some, some countries that have sounder fundamentals are better able to resist and the impact is less. Uh, the IMF is suggesting, well, maybe greater exchange rate flexibility and you let the exchange rate take the, take the heat and it'll all be fine. Um, but we need to note also that there's been no increase in the proportion of countries that actually do float their exchange rate. Um, and indeed, a slight drift towards de facto pegs um, in this time of instability. Um, so this is just the de facto exchange rate arrangements, and you can see the hard peg. Those are the ones who don't really have an independent currency at all are down there in the blue. The soft peg are the largest proportion. Uh, floating hasn't changed very much, and then there's a few others. And within the soft peg category, this is since the global financial crisis over the last, uh, I guess, eight years. Um, you can see that there's sort of quite a, the, the largest proportion of that is the conventional pegged exchange rate. And a bit more movement towards the crawling peg. So the response of countries uh, to the global financial crisis has not been to say, okay, well, everything's going to get the haywire, we'll let the exchange rate float, we'll move towards this inflation targeting. Um, it has been either to stay with the status quo or a slight drift, I would suggest, um, towards soft pegs. 
Okay, moving on to the governance of the global economy, uh, it really did re- reinvigorate the G20, uh, create a, a, a body that was very strong at the outset, um, and indeed the Financial Stability Board um, that also kind of rejuvenated or re- reinvented itself as a really important body. Um, and there was a really strong push for governance reform. This had started before uh, 2008 uh, with the rise of the BRICS, if everybody can remember the BRICS. Um, uh, so there's changes in the governance, the International Monetary Fund, the Bank for International Settlements moves from 10 central bank governors to the 20 and then back again. Um, I would suggest that some institutions have been rather sidelined, um, and I heard from the WTO on the radio this morning, but I hadn't really heard much of them at all uh, until very recently, and indeed they had, their influence has been eroded by regional trading arrangements um, and other sorts of uh, configurations that are on a less global scale. Um, and also perhaps the World Bank. Um, And here I have sort of the challenger to the World Bank to some extent is the Chinese um, Belt and Road Initiative. Um, And here in the governance of the global economy, I'm wanting to draw some kind of lessons from the 1970s, which was also a profound time of change, dislocation, and uncertainty in the international monetary system. When you had floating exchange rates for the first time in 40 years, so no trader operating in the market, no central banker, if they were under the age of 70, really, had any experience with a floating exchange rate regime. And the huge challenges that this posed as the institutions of the post-war peace, which were the IMF, the Bretton Woods system, all kind of came apart. So there's a lot of soul-searching and wondering about how to organize the international economy and the international monetary system also in the 1970s. Um, And this generated some coordination problems, and the big answer was, well, let's broaden the governance out from uh, from the OECD countries or the richest countries, Um, and a lot of the reform went through this Committee of 20, uh, which was a much broader representation. Um, In the end, in the 1970s, they were unable to agree very much. They didn't get any traction. There was a lot. It was sort of collecting interests rather than converging those interests uh, through the discussions that they had. Um, I'd argue that maybe in the long term, maybe we'll hear something more optimistic. In the short term, I think the G20 was hugely, hugely important. I wonder in the future whether that kind of coherence um, may start to pull apart. And certainly the, some of the leadership in the global economy is less uh, suited to that kind of cooperative forum. <laughs> Um, The second thing is the Basel process, which is the uh, Basel agreements and the capital adequacy in Basel 1, 2, and 3. Um, Basel 1 comes in in 1988. This is after the sovereign debt crisis of 1982, and they find, oh gosh, we actually need to have some kind of standardization, and it takes them a long time to come up with it. Um, They finally come up with it in 1988, um, and it's due to be implemented, and it's revised until about 1994, just in time for the next crisis. Uh, So the Mexican peso crisis is 1994. Um, Then they think, oh, well, we need to revamp this into Basel II. Um, And so they revamp it, and they design it, and they carefully craft it uh, between, say, uh, 2002 and 2004. The final version comes out in 2006, just in time for the next uh, financial crisis. So it tends to be a sort of a backward-looking process. uh, It takes a long time to negotiate with the banks how it's going to be implemented. Um, and so there's problems, problems there. It's, uh, Basel III, which is the one that came after the global financial crisis, uh, was finalized only in December 2017, and they're f- expecting full implementation uh, only over the next 10 years. 
So if you're wondering when the next global financial crisis is going to happen, there might be some clues there. Uh, the other aspect uh, about the 1970s that we can look at um, in comparison today is there's been a lot of discussion about reforming the SDR and maybe this uh, IMF's special drawing right could somehow be mobilized uh, into a, a source of global liquidity that is not controlled by any individual government. Uh, and that was an idea brought forward in 2009-10, uh, um, indeed, by the Chinese. I wanted to move briefly to the global financial safety net, which is a huge concern at the moment. Um, the response in the 1930s was to create a global uh, fin uh, financial safety net based around the International Monetary Fund, which was supposed to easily provide short-term liquidity for short-term balance of payments problems. That was what it was originally meant to be doing providing that kind of safety net for countries to allow them to have growth and uh, uh, ambitious expansion plans while maintaining a pegged exchange rate. Um, but they've ended up in a kind of a, a straitjacket of the Bretton Woods system in part. A lot of their focus of surveillance is bilateral and not multilateral, um, and they're quite constrained in their advice. So you're left with this sort of grouping of ways to have a global financial safety net. So you have the IMF, then you have national foreign exchange reserves, countries want to insure themselves by accumulating foreign exchange reserves. And of course, this is the source of global imbalances because in order to accumulate those foreign exchange reserves, you must be running persistent surpluses. Um, and if you're all running persistent surpluses, somebody on the other side is running a deficit. So it weakens the fabric of the global economy. There's also regional financial uh, arrangements, um, and the most famous, I guess, is the Chiang Mai um, initiative, uh, where groups of countries might agree to insure each other uh, through pools, pooling reserves, or other kinds of uh, formats. But of course, these are restricted. Often they also call in the IMF, as Chiang Mai does, as the kind of backstop uh, in order to avoid moral hazard. It can be harder amongst cozy neighbors to tell each other no when the moment comes um, than it is to have an outside agency do that for you. And indeed, Chiang Mai was not invoked after the crisis. And the fourth kind of framework is central bank swaps. And this, again, was something developed in the 1960s and 1970s, um, uh, both at the Bank for International Settlements and multilateral swaps, and also bilaterally uh, with the Fed. Um, so this is the Federal Reserve's reciprocal currency arrangements. They're swaps uh, with G10 countries from 1962 up to uh, 1997. So you're looking at 30, 32 billion dollars worth. Doesn't sound like that much, actually. It's a tidy amount. But if you look at it in terms of uh, 2017 dollars, okay, you're looking at 200, 250 billion dollars in the 1970s. And as a share of global reserves, although it's declining, it's still extraordinarily high at over 20% and then down to 5%. So the, the role of these swaps has a longer history, I think, than, uh, than people understand. And I think it's important to reflect back on this historic experience of how they worked and how they didn't work as we move to depend on them more in the future. Okay, I'm just coming to the end. So I wanted to come back to something a little bit happier, which is to remind you that we did do better. Um, than, than the 1930s, and we're not at war, uh, which is uh, the other sort of take home, I guess. Um, but I would argue that we really need to 
think about the longer term. We are 10 years on, and we're not back to a sense of, of whatever normal ever was. Um, there's still flaws in the system. And indeed, the legit longevity of some of these underlying flaws is creating its own problems. So important lessons, I think, were learned. We needed to sustain global liquidity. We needed confident leadership and cooperation. We need to maintain open markets for goods and capital. And these were the key lessons, particularly uh, from Charles Kindleberger and from Friedman and Schwartz. Um, and indeed, the initial success seems to demonstrate, well, we did it. This time, it's different, um, as they famously say. Um, we haven't had the currency wars. We didn't go into trade protectionism. Look how successful the G20 has been. Um, we have a broader and more intense sort of international financial ar architecture. And I would have probably agreed with that all about five years ago. Um, but I'm becoming more pessimistic, as a, perhaps because I am an economic historian and they are bent towards pessimism, but they're also bent to look back on how things unfold, how they unwind, how they dislocate um, if left too long. So 10 years after the end of the crisis, I'd argue that it is time to reassess not just the causes of the crisis and the adventures and excitement that happened uh, at the time, um, or even uh, we need also to recognize the misery, the global misery that this has caused, uh, not only uh, here in Europe, but in indeed globally. And the human cost of that, I think, still has to be uh, calculated. Um, but a time to reassess uh, our great kind of success in somehow avoiding the, uh, the 1930s crisis and reflect and take some lessons from, get a little bit afraid of uh, these issues of economic nationalism, trade wars, currency wars, and the fabric of the global financial safety net. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Catherine, and um, what we'll now do is in the order of uh, Gus O'Donnell, Charlie Bean, Manoush Shafiq, we'll ask for um, uh, some commentary, including from where you were sitting at the time, but uh, since you're now so closely associated with the LSE, we ha have the privilege of being academics reflecting back as well, but also perhaps looking forward, as Catherine did, towards the end. Um, Gus, would you like to kick sure. off? Sure. Um, I'd like to kind of put the political side of this and, and where the individuals were and what lessons we might get from that. When the whole thing, I think I go back to 97, and I was sitting on the board of the IMF and the World Bank. Gordon Brown had just come in as chancellor. We've got the Asian financial crisis. So I went with Gordon uh, and with the IMF around the Asian countries and their boards. And, and you could see a chancellor there kind of uh, who basically very interested in history, learning about financial crises, that, that particular one, looking at the role of the IMF, coming away from that thinking, I'm really interested in the global side of my job, which is unusual for chancellors on day one, right? Quite often you kind of desperately try and get them to sort out domestic things. Um, so that's where Gordon started. It's interesting, at this time, remember the IMF was doing, I wouldn't say it was entirely perfect the way it was managing the Asian financial crisis, you know, and we, I think they were learning some lessons. But it was also the time when the IMF was saying, hey, this financial derivative stuff, fine, they're, they're reducing risk, you know, and, and Gordon was very taken by the IMF. He ended up chairing one of the big committees, uh, and it was very much a sort of global view of things. And I remember... Uh, later, when we got into uh, the start of this financial crisis on a trip back from the States, 
He basically hoovered up large numbers of books. So you talked about uh, Ben Bernanke, uh, Barry Eichengreen, all of those sorts of things. He would get all of these. He'd throw off the dust covers and read the whole thing really quickly and come out with questions about them all and pepper you with questions. So here was somebody who, as a historian, was just desperate to get all of this stuff in. The other things that were happening at the time, of course, he'd come in. First thing he did, independence of the Monetary Policy Committee and the Bank of England. So he's doing domestic stuff, very much on monetary. And, of course, the thing that was happening on the financial stability side was what he inherited was 11 different regulators, pretty messy scenario. And what we were concentrating on is bringing these all together. So we were concentrating more on kind of institutional and process side of financial stability. And when it came to the bank, I think it's fair to say the bank was spending a lot of time sorting out monetary policy committee and monetary policy. And the financial stability side was, if you like, a kind of second wing, I would say. Charlie might want to comment on that. On top of that, what is the big issue, uh, again, economic issue that Gordon is dealing with uh, in his Treasury days vis-à-vis -vis his Prime Minister, is are we going to join the Euro or not? Now, the interesting side uh, aspect of this is we bombarded him because of the five tests with very techy economics about optimal currency areas, about how economies respond to shocks. And suddenly, here was someone who was really getting into understanding macro issues about how exchange rates work and capital controls and all those sorts of things. So what we got out of this was a chancellor, number one, who was in post for a very long time, chancellor for a very long time. So now let's fast forward to the financial crisis. Let's fast forward to him being uh, prime minister and, and to the G20. Um, so you've got a prime minister who is, has always been uh, in favor of active government. So he's there. He thinks, I've read all this stuff. Uh, I know no protectionism. I know that's absolutely vital. So he went into this, and we kind of rehearsed. The, what are the really big things here? And it's like, yeah, the mistake they made before was no protection. He's got that. Um, we need a fiscal response. He'd got that. There seems to be a monetary response and, of course, you know, independent central banks. But... So he was kind of in the mindset to be thinking about all of this. At the same time we had for that G20 conference, I remember very new American president, uh, Obama. I remember being in number 10. We got the G20 together. There was a reception in, in Downing Street, and the prime minister has to greet all the leaders as they come to number 10. So uh, President Obama arrives, uh, spot on time. Gordon has to whisk him upstairs, and I got to take him upstairs into number 10. I remember to this day in the room, I was thinking, how can I kind of lower the tension here? And I looked out over the window and said, do you realize, Mr. President, that that is the beach volleyball stadium for the <laughs> Olympics? And um, meanwhile, downstairs, Gordon Brown was there for rather longer than expected because the French, surprise, surprise, were late. That's one of the things about <laughs> international statements. That's what always happens. But it was very interesting. That G20, I would say this was the high point of the G20. It was amazing. Uh, the people that came together. I remember at one point, Obama and the Chinese going off to handle some silly thing about tax that wasn't really important but was getting in the way, sorting it out, coming back, saying, that's fine. I remember having phone calls saying, oh, uh, we've got this issue with a bomb. I was like, what? Uh, and because this had been put together very quickly, it was a very big conference. It was in the Excel Center, right by the Thames. 
we'd found an unexploded bomb. Just that, I don't even know if we made this public, but uh, it is now. Um, <laughs> Uh, it was a Second World War bomb. It wasn't exactly that. that but, but anyway, we, we devo- uh, got through it. That was the first crisis. But the, I think the G20 did an amazing job. Just uh, Nick said to us to look forward. Uh, it, was, it was a very odd group from day one. It wasn't designed to be the proper governance group. Uh, we'd all, Gordon in particular, had understood the whole business about IMF reform, the quotas and He'd lived through all of that and really got it in a way that not many did. And I think the G20 uh, has probably, some of the faults with it, its size, the composition, all the rest of it, mean that I think long term you'd ideally like something different. And the other thing I think that was important, and this is where Obama mattered a lot and the Fed mattered a lot, was US-UK relations through that period were really important. And you had a, a president and a prime minister who, I mean, obviously Gordon was saving the world, uh, but you, they worked very well together, uh, and the Fed and the Bank of England worked well together, and I think that made a huge difference. Um, also, the, the other aspect, I suppose, that hasn't been picked up, there's lots in, the, in all the things that people have uh, said, the memoirs and all the rest of it. All I would say is, cross-reference them all and you will find some things that are true. Um, all, all the things that went wrong, curiously enough, nobody thought of. All the things that went right, everybody thought of. So that's kind of, that's what you'd expect. But Gordon was particularly good at reaching out to people. I remember we got, when we, that weekend, when it was all falling apart, we got in all the banks and we asked the bank chairman, you know, are you going to be able to open on Monday? And the answer was... Actually, an answer I strongly recommend to economists, mostly when they ask questions. I don't know, but it wasn't really the answer we'd hoped for. Uh, And uh, they were sent away to go and find out, and the answers were pretty dreadful. Uh, So we got the big liquidity system and all the rest of it, and we ended up bailing out probably rather fewer banks than than I think we should have done. Uh, There's one in particular that everyone will know about. but a, but a classic example of the way Gordon approached these things, he said to me, well, get, get in some outside economists. You know, I want Rubini's views. I want Stiglitz's views. And we got a lot of those people in. And we, uh, I, I chaired a meeting of them all. And it was fascinating getting them all and their insights. And thinking, they were thinking about things in a very, very different way and were very much up for just nationalise the lot, you know, uh, which was interesting from an economic point of view, but politically for a, a Labour Prime Minister, really difficult. But... I think lessons for me, one, having, having a Prime Minister who's been around, been a, been a Chancellor, that was a really good point. I think that worked really well. I'd say we realised that banks were massively undercapitalised. Their boards didn't really know what was going on. Uh, I'd say the G20 can work, but I would, I would definitely think it needs to be revised uh, in the future. And, and there were some things which I think still need attention, like the global architecture, I still think, is a problem. And one of the things that became apparent from the technical work, one, one piece of economics in all of this, was a lot of the models we were all using were models estimated on a period of the past that That's didn't right. show any variation whatsoever. So we had these things, this, this stock exchange movement should be a once in a universe time, not a once in a lifetime, once in a universe. And we had three in a week. It was like, so I hope that that variance we've now got in the past will help us 
build models which actually work through and use as their estimation period some real variation. And where I would think about the crises we will miss for the future are those ones where the past has been very boring. And therefore, the models really don't tell you anything about what happens when you move outside of boring. That's it for me. It, it's not just that the models um, don't pick up the potential or the real probabilities of these extreme events. They also have some features which uh, rule out many of the things you're interested in. In particular, for most of the models, there's nothing or was nothing in them uh, that allowed you to have a, an extended slump because you had really correction mechanisms that, uh, that pulled it back. So you know, I think they were deeply flawed in a, a number of ways. I mean, we discussed some of this inside Her Majesty's Treasury. Um, but Charlie, the, uh, the Treasury officials usually point the finger at the Bank of England and what was your picture of it all? Okay, well, let, let me just start with um, the Queen's question and the British Academy's, uh, Tim Bedley's uh, response. And Peter Hennessy. And Peter Hennessy. Yeah. Um, I mean, the first thing I, I would want to emphasise, people always like to blame bad events like financial crises on some bad individuals and think we should just lock them up and uh, that will prevent it happening again. Uh, the really key thing, and this is reflected in the, uh, the uh, response to the uh, Queen in the letter, is that this was a, a, f a failure of the system and of a set of beliefs, uh, in that we had got into a, a world where basically we placed a lot of weight on the ability of banks to manage their risk. We basically thought markets worked uh, pretty well. Um, on top of that, uh, after a, uh, a long period of benign outcomes, the great moderation, inevitably people start projecting that to continue. And it becomes harder to see how things would go wrong. But that's exactly one, when you should be getting worried. This is Minsky's insight. And basically, Minsky was exactly, uh, exactly right. Layered into that as well were lots of market failures. Uh, the fact that uh, too big to fail meant bankers got the upside, but they didn't pay the downside. Securitization, which meant you could shift risks off, uh, which meant that you didn't have the same incentive to take care in originating loans uh, and so forth. Uh, so there's a, a lot of things that, that come together um, and because there's so much going on, that's part of the reason why it's so difficult to see up front what was going to happen. When you look at things with hindsight, everything seems to happen in a nice logical sequence. And you can see how something happening in one market spills over uh, into some other market and so forth. Uh, but in real time, it was much harder to see the sequence of those things. I mean, people sometimes say, oh, the problem was that central banks were uh, complacent and so forth. I'd really like to push back on that. I mean, certainly on the MPC, we spent a lot of time worrying about how things could go wrong. And in particular, and it was fairly natural to, given the information that we were looking at, we spent a lot of time worrying about, was the UK housing market overvalued? Were we likely to get a housing market crash? 
what was the consequences of the build-up of uh, mortgage debt and so forth. The other thing we worried a lot about uh, was a, a sharp correction in the dollar. What we missed was the problems were going to originate in another country, in this case the US, and spill back uh, into uh, UK financial markets and, and more broadly. I think the moral from this, the, the important thing is not to think that you can foresee where things are going to go wrong. And people who think, well, now we've got a financial policy committee and macro prudential policy and all will be well with the world. Uh, are in danger of making a mistake. It's certainly valuable having macroprudential policy, but you need to design a system which is robust against the unknown unknowns. And that's why I think it's very important that uh, banks have been made to hold much higher levels of uh, capital relative to their assets, because that should make them uh, much more robust. Um, as regards um, what it was like uh, in the bank uh, as the crisis unfolded, I think it's fair to say that you know, we were not as well prepared as we should have been when it started. So this is going back to 2007 uh, and the failure of Northern Rock and so forth. Now, liquidity support facilities were, uh, were not as good as they should be. We basically had the... Uh, sterling market framework through which we implemented monetary policy, which was fine for dealing with frictional uh, lending shortages, but not really for the closure of funding markets that we saw. And other than that, we just really had uh, emergency liquidity assistance to institutions which were really in difficulty uh, and nothing uh, in the middle. And then during the course of the crisis, we developed... Uh, auctions for getting uh, market-wide uh, funds out and so forth. Uh, equally in the US, of course, uh, the Fed were very innovative in developing new uh, lending facilities uh, and so forth. Equally, the UK didn't go into the crisis in 2007 with an adequate bank resolution regime. One of the, the good things about having Northern Rock is we'd largely fixed it up by the time... Uh, uh, that Lehman's collapsed and we were dealing with um, uh, HBOS and uh, Royal Bank of Scotland. The monetary policy side, I think we realised that we needed to act pretty aggressively when uh, uh, the proverbial excrement hit the fan after Lehman's uh, collapsed and slashed uh, bank rate pretty much to the floor. And then it was, what next? Answer... Uh, large-scale asset purchases. Um, now, I actually think quantitative easing um, uh, did uh, what we needed it to do. It sent a signal that we were prepared to act aggressively to uh, get the economy growing again. Um, subsequently, QE has uh, come under criticism really for uh, a couple of reasons. Uh, the first, which Catherine referred to as the uh, the argument that it creates adverse spillovers, the currency wars uh, story. I'd say the first version of this, uh, which Guido Mantegna, the Brazilian finance minister, uh, advanced in uh, 2010 in the G20, 
uh, I thought rather missed the point because he focused on the exchange rate effects but completely ignored the fact that QE was designed to increase demand in the US uh, and in the other advanced economies. And moreover, uh, the, the dollar didn't actually depreciate. Uh, in fact, it, uh, it appreciated slightly as a result of uh, the Fed's actions. A more telling criticism, uh, though, is a couple of years later when Raghu Rajan, uh, the governor of the Reserve Bank of India, um, stressed the uh, disturbing consequences of the capital flows, big capital flows washing in and out. Uh, and I think the change in the IMF's attitude to capital flows management tools, essentially as a macroprudential tool, uh, was very uh, important. Um, I think it is very difficult to expect the Fed to direct its monetary policy to external objectives, though. So there, there is unresolved issues there. Uh, I just finally want to uh, say a few words on the, the question of international cooperation and governance. A lot of people say, oh, you know, this is what made the G20. It came to the fore, and it's the preeminent uh, forum for international cooperation. Uh, I think the most important single international meeting, uh, I should say as a preface to this, I, one of my roles at the bank was to be the bank's deputy at the G7 and G20. So the deputies are the people who do all the work. We have three times as many meetings as the principals do, but we, we basically prepare the ground. The G7 meeting that was held in October 2018, uh, alongside the IMF meetings, uh, so this was, uh, sorry, not 2018, 2008, um, immediately after the um, uh, collapse of Lehman's, uh, uh, was unusually a meeting where uh, real decisions were taken at that meeting, um, uh, partly in response to uh, impassioned pleadings from the Japanese not to repeat the mistakes they had made, uh, ben Bernanke had come along with a, uh, a five-point plan on a piece of paper. Uh, the principals uh, are presented with a communique prepared by their deputies, which has a load of waffle in it. Um, a lot of time is spent creating this waffle. Sensibly, the principals just tore it up and said, right, we'll put uh, Ben's five-point plan out, which basically had aggressive fiscal and monetary action, bank recapitalization uh, as part of it. And that meeting was also important to getting the um, US authorities to pivot from insuring impaired assets or potentially buying them to focusing more on bank recapitalization and gave the impetus to the uh, uh, macroeconomic policy actions that were taken. Turning now to the, the G20, um, one of the real problems with the G20 is just the sheer size of the meetings. You might think, oh, well, it's 20 countries. It's actually officially 19 countries plus the EU. But there's loads of other countries that get invited. And once they're invited, it's quite difficult to uninvite them. And each country has two people there. And they've got a couple of deputies sitting behind them. And there's the international organizations there. There's the IMF and the World Bank and the OECD and Organization of African States and Uncle Tom Cobbley and all. So you've got 60, 70 people in the room. You can't have an effective meeting that really focuses on taking 
responsive decisions of the sort that were taken at that G7 meeting immediately after the collapse of Lehman's uh, in a, uh, a group that size. It's good at getting people together so they know each other, that's valuable, but it's not actually an effective uh, size meeting. Uh, the bit of the G20 that I think has worked well, Gus has talked about 2009, the macro policy coordination, that did work well. But everybody wanted to do the same thing there. They weren't difficult problems. It became much harder in subsequent years when the focus was much more on trying also to deal with the imbalances and get surplus countries and countries with a lot of fiscal space like Germany to step in and uh, pick up the ball. And it always runs up against the problem that Keynes grappled with. Uh, how can you get a more symmetric burden of adjustment that doesn't always rely on the, the deficit-struggling countries to do the adjustment, puts uh, more weight on the countries that have got room for policy maneuver to contribute? And we still haven't uh, solved that. So I think it's very difficult to get macro policy coordination uh, uh, through uh, the G20. The area I think the G20 has worked uh, particularly well, though, is the financial re-regulation uh, program. Because the way that works, the G20 doesn't take the decision. The G20 sets the exam paper pretty much uh, um, when a new country takes over, uh, it says, okay, this is your problem for this year, solve too big to fail or whatever it might be, yeah. Um, and then the FSB and the Basel Committee go away, the technocrats spend the time solving it, they come back at the end of the year, this is what we propose, G20 says yes, and then they go on to the next question. And that has provided an ongoing impetus to the financial uh, regulation reform, which I think has been uh, very uh, important. I'll stop there. Th thank you, Charlie. A, a real international perspective, and just picking up the response or the letter to the Queen again, um, the failure to see it as a system, of course, means also a failure to see it as an international mm -hmm. system, and that's a very big part of the story. And what you're seeing here is, I mean, those of you who've seen Hamilton will know you've got to be in the room where it happens. <laughs> and uh, what you've got is a group of people who have been in the rooms where it happens. So another one who's been in the room where it happens is um, our director, Manoush Shafiq. So over to you. Thank you, Nick. So when the financial crisis hit in 2008, I was safely ensconced in uh, the Department for International Development, where I was permanent secretary at the time. And so we were worried at, from a very different end of the problem, what this was, hap what this was doing to low-income countries and developing countries. And I always remember that um, I think it was the Indian authorities in particular, would never refer to it as the global financial crisis. They always refer to it as the North Atlantic financial crisis. <laughs> to make it clear that it was you guys who screwed up and we're suffering the consequences. Um, but I often like to think of the crisis as having three phases. The first was the collapse of the North Atlantic financial system. The second was, uh, was the Eurozone crisis, which was the sort of second wave of the crisis. And the third was the sort of conduct crisis, which, uh, which occurred 
after that, uh, in which banks were found to have conducted all sorts of misconduct and suffered very large fines as a result of it. So I, I was involved much more in the second and third waves of the crisis. And if I reflect on that time, I think for me the biggest lesson is around governance. Governance around particularly the way uh, decisions are made in, in crisis times. And I'll just illustrate that. I think we've already heard a lot about the G20 and whether or not it worked. Um, I mean, my, my best metaphor for the G20 is the G20 is like a tea bag. It only works in hot water. <laughs> and so in a crisis time, actually, it's amazing how, you know, those 80 people in a room who often just talk rubbish and read prepared statements, there's a sort of focus that sets in when you're in a crisis, uh, and you are able to get consensus much more quickly. Um, and the coordinated monetary and fiscal policies, the commitment to avoid protectionism and so on, uh, were, were very quickly agreed to. In contrast, when I was very involved in the Eurozone crisis when I was at the IMF, the biggest reason we had the Eurozone crisis was a failure of governance. Um, and it was a failure of governance in the way Europe took decisions around the crisis and the inability to make decisions. One of the things you learn at the IMF is when you're in a crisis, you need an authority who has uh, unitary power to make decisions. And having personally sat through Eurozone finance ministers' meetings, where you have 17 finance ministers sitting around a table trying to agree the details of the Greek bailout. Um, and the Finns put up their hand and say, we have never defaulted on our debt in our entire history, and we refuse to accept any, any concessions in terms of debt forgiveness for Greece under any circumstances, and we want collateral from the Greeks, and we'd like a few islands, please, as collateral. <laughs> and the whole conversation stops because the Finns want collateral. So, and there was no mechanism because there was no unitary authority. In the end, I think it's not surprising that the only institution that could operate coherently and ultimately save the Eurozone was the ECB because the ECB was a coherent institution that could actually act. You could never get a committee of 17 finance ministers to act in a coherent way. So I think governance is the key issue there. I think the other un, un, um, see, what can I call it? Un, uncredited institution, which I think was actually quite critical, and I think Charlie will probably agree, is the BIS. And the BIS is a little-known piece of the international financial system, but it is, uh, it is vital in a very unusual way. It doesn't actually do a whole lot, uh, but it builds social capital among central bankers. Uh, and they go to these meetings all the time, and they all know each other, and they can compare notes. And it is, one, it is the only place I discovered that central bankers ever actually can speak frankly outside their own institutions because you kind of trust other central bankers. But it was absolutely critical, and again, I know there's some personal experience in the, when we did the contingency planning around the Brexit referendum. The fact that you knew these people closely and personally meant you could pick up the phone to another central bank and know that those swap lines were at the end of that phone call. And I once asked to see the paper, the documentation, the contract that is between, like, say, the Fed and the ECB and the Bank of England to mobilize those swap lines. It's nothing. There's nothing. It's one page. It's one page. 
to, in, to mobilize billions, which shows how that trust that's built through those central bank networks is absolutely vital. I think just in terms of reflecting on the present, I think just drawing on what Catherine said around the present, the current state of governance of the international financial architecture, I would just say a few things. I mean, first of all, the challenges we face are different. There's been a bit of a deglobalization of banking flows as a result of regulatory reforms. And so many banks have consolidated, short-term flows have diminished, many banks have sort of come home. But having said that, I think there are much higher risks in terms of... Uh, uh, government and corporate debt, in particular our corporate debt, has, uh, has become a much higher risk. So in terms of the current state of the safety net and the, sa the state of governance, it's pretty patchy. Um, you know, foreign exchange reserves, as you said, is, is the first port of call for most countries. That's the first cushion they have if they have a crisis. It's incredibly inefficient for every country to hold its own foreign exchange reserves because it, basically everybody is self-insuring. And if you could pool the insurance, it would be so much more efficient. But failure of governance, everyone is stuck with this highly inefficient system of insuring yourself through holding these really expensive reserves uh, which, uh, which don't create any economic benefit. Regional arrangements have been put in place. The Asian uh, safety net, the European monetary fund, what the forthcoming, the, the ESM, the European Stability Mechanism. And they are interesting additions to the safety net, but to be frank, I don't think they have added anything in terms of, they've added some more financial resources but if you look at the fine print, most of them will not deliver any of those financial resources until they get a green light from the IMF. So they're just augmentations of the IMF, really, in, in operational terms. The resources of the IMF are, um, are vulnerable. About, they have, the fund has a war chest of about a trillion dollars. About half of that are temporary resources, and they are up for renegotiation, and there isn't a clear commitment to extend those. So the permanent quota is about half of that. And it's unclear whether, under the current political environment, there will be an appetite to renew that, that safety net. Would the swap lines work today? Would the Fed or the ECB be so forthcoming as they were in 2008? Question mark. Um, and, and I guess the, the last thing I'd say is, um, is in terms of the role of the fund, uh, yes, resources are temporary. I, I think the fund does do a huge amount more in terms of multilateral surveillance. I mean, certainly when I was there, you know, there's the WIO, there's the Global Financial Stability Report, there's the early warning exercise, there's a sort of huge machinery. But going back to something that Charlie said, there's all this surveillance machinery to identify risks, but there is no power to discipline surplus states uh, and no authority to act in, on, uh, in, in a coordinated fashion. And so until we have some mechanism, which, as you say, Keynes grappled with from the beginning, uh, the risks that these imbalances end up resulting in crises remains quite high. Thank you, Manish. For, for, for transparency and topicality, I, I should mention that um, in 2016, under the German presidency, the Germans asked for uh, put to the G20, the G20 accepted the idea of having a review of the international uh, architecture, review of the IFIs and their governance. And uh, the, <clears throat> the G20 rather pompously entitled um, Eminent Persons Group 
Um, for transparency, I was part of that. We reported last Friday, and uh, those of you who would like to look at it, um, making a global financial system that works for all is roughly the title. It was chaired by Tarman Shanmugaratnam, um, who is Deputy Prime Minister of, um, of Singapore and uh, a chair of the IMFC, and most importantly, a graduate of the London School of Economics. <laughs> And uh, I encourage you to look at that on the sort of overall monetary side. It looks at things like um, risk assessments not coming from just one place, putting together, you know, the BIS and the IMF and the FSB. You need a broader perspective on systemic risk. It talks about managing capital flows. Um, not surprisingly, Raghu Rajan was one of uh, that group. It talks about pre-qualifications to get monies quickly when you need them and that kind of thing. I, I was working mostly on the coherence of the multilateral development banks and that. I, I won't go into it. We, we need to get Tarman over to present it uh, here. But it was the G20 asking those longer-term questions and setting up a mechanism to of 15 people, not 70 people, to try to make that uh, happen. But um, we've taken a lot of time, but Catherine, you've been very patient. Is there anything you'd like to offer in response? I just wanted to uh, pick up a, a couple of mentions. And Gus said, well, you know, we, our models weren't long enough. We didn't have enough data. Greg Lipman's were, um, and that's why he knew to short the housing, U.S. housing market. Uh, so he was aware that the, that the models were too short, but if he looked back and just even plotted the data back through to the 1980s, he found a very different picture. So it's a plea, I guess, uh, for the long run, um, and it's a plea for economic history being really important to policymaking. Um, just pick up Manoush's point about the Basel, uh, uh, about the BIS and the central bank um, by uh, monthly meetings. Um, this is something that was instituted very firmly in the 1960s and 70s. They were able, therefore, to multilateralize the swap system, yes. um, which has less political exposure uh, than the Fed came under um, with the bilateral swaps. So there's options there again. Thank you, Catherine. Now, I mean, it's my fault in large measure. We've only got 15 minutes for uh, questions. Um, we'll take three three. Uh, in a group and then put to um, the panel. I won't ask everyone on the panel to ask every question because otherwise we'll get too few um, questions. Um, so if you could be very brief and uh, succinct with the question, make sure it's the questions and not what you would have said had you been a, uh, had you been, uh, a discussant. And there is an LSE tradition of gender a balance in the questioning, so why don't we start with a lady somewhere? Gender reassignment is allowed. <laughs> okay. <coughs> no? There's a woman right here. In the middle? Right, right in the middle, in the middle. Nick. Oh, yes, please. Thank you very much. <laughs> no, there's a mic. And could you, could you just say very briefly who you are as well, please? Uh, thank you. Uh, Sheila Page, OSC's Development Institute. I wanted to ask whether the, you see a contrast between the response to the 1930s, admittedly after 15 years, not 10, in building new, reasonably enforcing institutions, and the response of the, the 10-year-ago crisis, which was relying on basically a rather ad hoc informal mechanism such as the G20, and does this pose risks for the future? 
Thank you. Um, one more, one from upstairs. Uh, the gentleman in the white, is the white shirt there? It looks white to me. Okay. Hi, I'm Saad Khalid. I work for one of the banks who got greedy. But um, my question is on about inequality. There was a very interesting comparison between the 1930s. I'm interested to know how did inequality differ post-1930s versus post-2008. Thank you. Uh, one more. Uh, lady right at the front here. Hi. Uh, my name is Chelsea. I'm the LSC Research Division. So first of all, I would like to ask Professor O'Donnell, um, you mentioned the importance of UK-US relations at the time of the uh, global financial crisis in terms of effective policy coordination. I was wondering if you also could, also if you could share any insights about um, how uh, U.S. as well as U.K. Um, coordination uh, worked with Beijing. And I would also like to ask Professor Schenk if she could also share um, knowledge about how the Chinese uh, policy coordination in response to the uh, 2008 crisis either differed or was quite similar to um, the response of most advanced economies. Thank you. Um, the majority there for you, Catherine, I think, um, it, it, you, you struck a chord with the economic historians and the comparison with the 1930s. I hope I'm inspiring some, uh, some budding economic historians. Um, in terms of the, the traction toward developing stronger institutions, um, the IMF itself kind of waxes and wanes in its popularity and its effectiveness. Um, I think the cooperation between agencies, so this has been one of the things the G20, when they give out their exam paper, uh, as Charlie was saying, uh, they give it out not to one institution but to a group. So you've got the IMF and the FSB and the OECD and the BIS all kind of working together on these problems, which I think is, a, is, an, is an added benefit. I would just say that about the pre-qualification and this sort of thing, there are, there are real problems with stigma associated with yep. going to the fund, and we're seeing that today, yesterday, and the day before. Um, and so the pre-qualifications, the ones that getting lines of credit that don't have conditions attached to them, but if you need them, you might be able to get them. They've tried a lot to introduce these kinds of, um, these kinds of programs uh, all the way through the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, um, and they've never been popular because the stigma is still there. Uh, so the flexible credit line, for example, that was uh, their, their biggest sort of innovation in this way is only taken up now by two countries. Um, so, and it, yet it, it takes up the huge bulk of the IMS resources, although nobody's drawing on it and nobody wants it. So, so I think there's problems there. Um, in terms of the inequality, inequality was a huge problem in the 1930s. Uh, we, it was the era of mass unemployment in the uh, industrialized countries, of course, um, and the bread lines and the uh, dust bowl. There was an agricultural depression that hit globally. So... Uh, all around the world in different ways. Um, it's the time of the Grapes of Wrath. Uh, and, and I think this, this has an impact on political cultures um, and senses of entitlement, senses of national identity um, and conflict uh, that is very dangerous um, and, uh, and risky for the, for the global system. So it's another important lesson I think we need to keep in mind. Um, in terms of the Chinese response, they also kind of pursued an expansionary uh, response. Um, a lot of that was 
uh, funneled through um, infrastructure expenditure, uh, and all, a lot of it also went through banks and also through local municipality borrowing and, and that sort of thing. And that has created some fragilities in the in the Chinese system. Um, so there are some risks also, I think, behind that, particularly as the uh, growth trajectory for China kind of slowed down. I think one of the interesting things coming out after, say, even 2010 and 2012 um, is the retreat from the internationalization of the RMB um, and the change shift in focus of the Chinese economy, um, which I think will have profound effects on the global economy in the future. And um, on pre-qualification, Catherine, that we, we, do, we do say something, and the, the problem of stigma is there, but it's not, in, not, not insuperable. It doesn't go away, but I think we did try to offer, offer, some, um, offer some thoughts. Um, the uh, Gus, question for you. Sure. The... Um UK-US relationship, I think you have to understand prime ministers and presidents uh, get very close because of our security relationship. So there is always uh, a very close bond. Uh, certainly was during my time with going back to John Major and uh, George Bush Senior. Um, and, and it's a very personal bond, you know, being invited out to Camp David and staying there. They get to know each other very well. Uh, Charlie mentioned the importance of G7, and I was a G7 deputy as well. So, I mean... G7 for a lot of period. I, I remember going back, got to Plaza with Nigel Lawson. You know, there the, were um, G5. I mean, if you could get that working really well, particularly in the old days, you know, way back then, it was incredibly effective. Mm -hmm. And the way G7s quite often work was if the UK and the US, uh, and it was the other way around, the US leading with the UK following, uh, you could pretty much get what you wanted. Uh, the, the Japanese were very passive in G7, always. very passive, always passive. Um, the Germans and the French, a little bit more so, but I mean, basically, if there's a UK, US position, you would get it through. And so that was a big driver of international coordination. So for that tight group then to move to G20, you could see that they kind of felt, mm, you know, even when I remember Canada and Italy coming in from G5 to G7, it was a bit, mm, really? Um, so... Uh, it's, it, it's moved a lot, but on the other hand, we were all very aware towards the end of my time that this was a very strange grouping for the modern world and it just didn't reflect economic power and wasn't the right grouping and needed revitalization. But it's very difficult. Uh, I'm, I'm going to move, if it's all right, Charlie and Manoush, to just to get, try and get one more round uh, of questions uh, in. So upstairs, a gentleman in the T-shirt upstairs. Okay, Martin Chu, I'm just a retired personage. Um, fascinated about the uh, status of quantitative easing nowadays. Um, obviously, it's a magic bullet which solved the last economic crisis and will solve all future economic crisis. Uh, can you please comment on that? Hey. <laughs> Thank you. Um, lady just down here. Hi, uh, Donna Carmichael, PhD student in sociology at LSE. Um, the Greek bailout uh, imposed incredibly onerous conditions on Greece, um, resulting in, in massive hardships on, on the population um, that will uh, last for a very long time. However, the bailout was considered a massive success. So my question to you is, would you say it was a massive success? Right. One, one last question. Uh, gentleman. Uh, 
Uh, my question, uh, I'm Candice, and I'm a student at the LSE doing MSc IPE. So my question is directed uh, at our director. So I'm just wondering if you think that universities have a responsibility in teaching our future generations of economists of a more pluralist approach to understand eco uh, economy in general so that we would not only come up with better solutions but also understanding why crises happen and hope to lessen uh, their impact in the future. Thank you. Um, th thank you, thank you very much. Uh, Minouche, two, two for you. I think uh, you were in the room where it happened on Greece and uh, directly on LSC, and then I'll ask um, others to come in on. Okay. Um, on Greece, um, I, I don't think anyone would call it a massive success. I think it was the best that could be done given the constraints at the time. That's the best I can say, to be honest. Um, I think there were huge tensions on the social side. Um, you know, I think it's no secret the fund would have been, was more interested in structural reforms and allowing the fiscal to adjust a bit more slowly so you wouldn't have to make the cuts as much, whereas the commission was much more interested and concerned with Greece meeting the European fiscal targets. And so there were very real tensions in the Troika, to be honest, and I think that's in the public domain and everybody knows that. Um, and again, I think that it goes back to a governance and decision-making problem. Uh, and so once you met everyone's constraints, the outcome wasn't so great. Um, and then on rethink on, on macro and teaching a wider curriculum, I I think there is there is a there is a huge rethinking, particularly on macroeconomics, going on now post crisis. I think uh, both rethinking on the narrow kind of regulatory agenda and what should happen with financial regulation, but also rethinking the pace of austerity and the way the bailouts were done. Who bore the costs? Uh, you know, countries had opted for very different approaches. I can think. Well, yeah, someone asked about income inequality. Iceland was an example I was responsible for in the fund. Iceland uh, managed to adjust to a huge crisis and a huge shock, while actually improving income inequality uh, because of the choices they made on the way the fiscal adjustment was born. And also, to be honest, they um, they made the rest of the world bear some of the costs by defaulting on deposits around the world. <laughs> But you know, they made a choice, and I, I think there are there are really there are real choices here, and I think we have to be a lot more thoughtful and critical about thinking about how countries cope with shocks on this scale. And yes, I think economics is is in the midst of doing exactly that. So, thank you, Manish. I, I can't resist. You mentioned Finland wanting islands as collateral. I just got back from Indonesia, which has seventeen thousand islands, and I thought that was the most in the world. But in an idle moment, I googled which has the most islands in the world. It's Canada and Finland. And, and <laughs> <laughs> But Char Charlie, do you want to say something? a full set. Do <laughs> you want to say something about QE2? Uh, yeah. Uh, first of all, on um, universities and pluralism, uh, uh, um, economics and pluralism, uh, I'd just say, you know, we should teach what's useful for understanding, uh, you know, what's happened. Um, and you should come and do my monetary economics option, EC3, if you want. <laughs> uh, on QE, um, and um, will it solve future crises, uh, I would want to emphasize the limits to QE. Um, we had to deploy it in uh, 2009. There wasn't much uh, road left with conventional 
uh, a use of uh, short rates, we've got pretty much down to the effective floor. Uh, and asset purchases were the only monetary weapon left. I mean, of course, there's other weapons, fiscal policy and so forth. Um, now, the, the theoretical limit to QE is a long way off mm. because, you know, the, the bank bought uh, government debt, but there's lots of other assets it can buy. It can buy private credit. It can buy equity. It can buy fine art. It can buy real estate. <laughs> the limit is when it's bought every asset in the world. <laughs> so that limit is an awful long way off. But before you get anywhere close to that, you start hitting what are a really more political economy type constraints. As the central bank goes beyond government debt into buying private credit, it's taking credit risk onto its balance sheet. Uh, that's uh, potentially cost the taxpayer. So there's uh, essentially, it's got a fiscal dimension to it. If it buys equities, it's buying control rights in companies. Nationalization is an extremely politically contentious uh, action. It also uh, has distributional consequences. Uh, I meant to mention that in my uh, original remarks, but of course that's something that people have focused on, that it works by driving up asset prices, so it benefits those who already have assets. Uh, to the detriment of those who haven't acquired them but, but want to acquire them for the future. Um, so uh, the more you want to uh, deploy QE, I think the more you start running into these sorts of problems. So I see it as an emergency weapon, uh, something we had to use in the, the 2008-09 crisis, but not one to be relying on in, uh, at all times. And uh, that means if we uh, are hit by another bad shock in the near future, uh, I think fiscal policy has to bear more of the burden in sustaining demand. It can't all be left to monetary policy, as has been the case for much of the past 10 years. Thank you, John. I'm going to give – we have to close now. It's 8 o'clock, but I – Last word for our speaker, Catherine, and then I'll do the thank yous. Okay, I'll just quickly say um, 10 years feels like maybe for us up here in our generation, uh, it's not that, that long ago. It feels like it wasn't that long ago that all this happened. But I'm looking out at you as I look out at my students, and it's their whole, your whole adult lived experience for a lot of people in this room. Um, that changes the mindset of a generation, and it's really important to be reflecting 10 years on um, not only on the minutia and the drama of the collapse of Lehman's and, and then pointing fingers and that sort of thing, um, but trying to really um, internalize and, and realize the implications of this um, and how we can use this experience really to move forward in a different kind of way. Thank you, Catherine. So let me thank the hosts, LSE Ideas, Department of International History and the Royal Economic Society. Let me thank you all for coming and um, your very thoughtful questions and my apologies that there weren't time uh, for more. But most of all, to um, thank um, our speaker, um, Catherine, and our commentators, discussants, um, Gus, Charlie, and Minouche. Thank you very much. It's been a really good evening. <laughs>